0: Welcome to the Bottomless Pit Podcast and to the second half of my conversation with Eric Maddox, the founder and director of OpenRoadsMedia.org and the Virtual Dinner Guest Project. If you haven't listened to the first half of this conversation in the last episode then I urge you to pause this one and go back and do so. You'll hear all about what things are really like in countries such as Egypt, Syria, Palestine and Mexico and will likely come away with a very different viewpoint compared to the one that is often portrayed in the media. Since I'm on the topic of last week's episode, I would just like to take this opportunity to offer a clarification and correction for a couple of things I said in the introduction to that episode. Firstly, the time Eric spent in Egypt was for a few months prior to the revolution as well as a two year period after the revolution, not for years both before and after as it may have come across originally. Secondly, I mentioned that Eric spent 18 months living in a refugee camp. Now, if you listen to the rest of that episode, you will have heard him say that he actually spent 5 months living in the West Bank, and then a couple of weeks in the Gaza Strip. Honestly, I have no idea where I got that 18 month figure from, but all I can say is that I recorded the interview weeks before I recorded that introduction, and somewhere along the way I created an extra 12 months out of thin air. Fortunately, these mistakes do not take anything away from the episode and certainly do not lessen the validity or reality of the things Eric talks about in it. It was simply just a quick lesson for myself in the reliability of memory and the importance of fact-checking. With that in mind, let's get on to today's episode. Finishing off the conversation I had with Eric, this time around we are concentrating on the times he spent visiting and living in refugee camps from Palestine to Syria and Greece. And he talks about what refugee camps actually look like what a refugee is, what life is like as a refugee, and some of the unique struggles that many people face when the country they flee to in order to escape horrific conditions in their home state will not recognize them as refugees. This makes for another eye-opening conversation And if you want to hear more from Eric and from some of the people who have gone through the things he talks about with me, then do go and check out his own podcast, Latitude Adjustment, where he has long form conversations with people from all over the world who have been through their own unique set of struggles, including, but not limited to, people from the Middle East, West Africa and Eastern Europe. Now, with that said, let's settle down and get stuck into the second half of my conversation with Eric. This is episode 77 of the Bottomless Pit podcast the bottomless pit find us on social media and everywhere you get podcasts let's go back to the sort of the the time in the middle east for a sec the last last kind of topic area I'd like to cover with you today because we could obviously I mean there's clearly so much more that we could talk about but you know time is is the limiting factor here but the, the last topic I'd like to cover with you is the, this time you spent in and around refugee camps and refugees so you've mentioned that you spent time at a refugee camp in in Bethlehem in the West Bank uh were you were you living there did you say Yes. What was that like to, to, to live in a refugee camp? Can you describe what the what the area was like, what the size was like, what the living conditions were like, how the people were? What What is it to live in a refugee camp? Because, you know, most people who listen to this are from US, Canada, Ireland, and uh, the UK. And I would imagine it's not too far of a, of, a, of a leap to guess that they have no idea what a refugee camp actually is like other than pictures you've seen on the news. I certainly don't. Yeah, sure.
1: I mean, I've been in and around refugee camps in a number of contexts. So the West Bank, Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, in kind of an informal way. Oh, and uh, Greece um, in 2015. And um, i trying to think if there's any place else. I think that covers it. So, I mean, it depends on, uh, on where we're talking about and which community. Most of those have been Palestinian refugee camps and some have been uh, Syrian refugee camps. And then other, like the one in Greece was Moria camp on Lesbos. That was for whoever was coming over in the boats. You know, people from all over the place, even Latin America. I mean, believe it, or, believe it or not. Yeah, oh, there wow. was one guy that, like, uh, one of my friends who was volunteering there along with me. He bumped into a guy from, uh, I think, the Dominican Republic. who was trying. To, How's
0: he getting there? How did he? He was, was trying he to get, get back I mean, by to, boat, but from where? He
1: was trying. Well, I, I would imagine from Turkey because that's where everybody was coming from. Who wound up in Lesbos, But uh, I think he was trying to get back to Spain, and maybe that was like the the easiest route. I don't know. Um, I didn't. Wow. I mean, I didn't speak to the guy firsthand, but. Uh, when people hear refugee camp, they're going to have whatever image they're going to have in their mind, you know, that might be like tense and some like, uh, uh, I can't predict what other people's image is going to be when I say refugee camp. So I can, and, and I don't want to just like, when I describe the places that I've been, make them think that that's what they all look like, you okay. know, yep. because this depends on, well, big factor is context and, and time. Like how long has that refugee camp existed? The Palestinian camp I lived in at that time, it had been 60 years, you know, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like, yeah. this is multiple generations of people existing as refugees in this place. When they were first displaced in like 1948, there were tents. But by the time I got there um, and now it's 70 years um, this year, they were cinder block structures.
0: Is that still a, a, a refugee camp by this point? Is it not is it not a city? Do you know what I mean?
1: No, it's I mean its official designation is a refugee camp administered okay. by the by the UN, by UNRWA. So the land itself is like from what I understand, leased by the UN. And in the case of foreign countries like Lebanon, it's not Lebanese soil. You know, inside those camps it is it is its own entity administered by the United Nations. Um, like the Lebanese military can't enter it, you know, it's not sovereign. Um, Lebanese territory so yeah they're very much by every classification refugee camps when you're talking about these Palestinian camps when I lived in Dehesia, was one of three in Bethlehem from what I remember you might want to fact check this because it's been some time I think it was about kilometers squared and maybe 14 or 15 thousand residents and uh, that's small like as far as the, the density of the population inside Balata refugee camp in the West Bank in Nablus, which is, I mean, well, as the crow flies, just a few kilometers away, um, many, many more people, like tens of thousands in a similarly small space. And it's because these places started in like the late 40s and people were expecting to go back home after the war ended. And then they're stuck there 60, now 70 years later. And they've, like, grandchildren and maybe even great-grandchildren are growing up in these places. And subsequent generations are considered refugees, registered refugees, too. Wow. So, the tents have long since turned into these, like, cinder block structures. But it's, I mean, these spaces are packed incredibly tight. And, like, like, you can be walking down alleys in a lot of cases and, like, you can easily touch both walls. So, really densely packed and... Something to understand about the West Bank and Gaza is some people just think it's like it's all just one big refugee camp. You know, it's it's not like the West Bank is cities and countryside and then dotted throughout that space, which is all effectively controlled by Israel. I mean, there's certain zones that are supposed to be considered autonomous under the Palestinian authority, but all of it is subject to the military interest and authority of the Israeli government. And uh, yeah, sprinkled all over that space in the West Bank are refugee camps. So people who fled in uh, 1948 or who fled in 1967, I believe as well. Well, no, they wouldn't have fled in 67 because that's when the territory was annexed. So yeah, people would have fled in 1948 thinking that they were going to come back when that war was over. You know, a lot of them left with the keys to their houses and the titles to their land. They still have them, but now other families are living in those homes. Um, And they've never been able to return. So the same with people in Gaza. And you have people who also just lived in those places, you know, before 1948. They were just like local farmers. They're not refugees, but they are living under military occupation. They're living on the land that maybe they've always lived on, but now subject to the authority of a foreign government. And in the case of Gaza, the uh, Israeli forces pulled out all of the settlers in 2005, there was a unilateral withdrawal of the, of the settlers there, um, which are people who moved onto this occupied land that was annexed in 1967. There were about 8,000 that were removed. I mean, that gets pointed to a lot as like this concession that was made by Israel. But what you have to understand is that's nothing compared to the number of settlers that live in the West Bank, which is, I think, now, I mean, it's in the hundreds of thousands, maybe close to 300,000 or something at this point. Um, so there's no comparison. And also Gaza is under while there's no forces, Israeli forces inside Gaza, except when they do incursions and assassinations as they did like in the last couple of weeks, they do control land, air, and sea, you know, with the exception of the Rafah crossing in Egypt and the Sinai Desert, which is controlled by Egypt, but they basically have been doing the same thing that Israel has, keeping that border almost completely sealed off.
0: What's Egypt's interest in that? Why have they done that?
1: Number of ways to frame that, but the simplest answer is it's a purchase peace, right? So in nineteen seventy nine Um, There were the Camp David Accords overseen by then President Jimmy Carter, and uh, Egypt and Israel signed a peace treaty. And uh, so Egypt formally recognized Israel, established formal diplomatic relations. One of the things that Egypt got out of that was massive aid package every year, which it enjoys up to this day, right? Even with all the oppression that's going on, it's with the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, it's it's dipped maybe a little bit in the standings, but more or less for like since the early '80s, it's been the second largest recipient of American military aid in the world after Israel, and a lot of Americans don't even know that. Wow! Um, and it's it's more or less like uh, to purchase the peace. You know, we'll we'll give you the tools that you need. Well, to do what? Their principal historical enemy has just signed a priest duty with them. Why do they need all this military equipment? Who are they going to use that against? Well, who have they been using it against? Their own people, right? <laughs> so, I mean, there's just, I mean, that kind of just like blatant sign of support for oppressive forces in Egypt. Um, but they get a huge uh, U.S. military package every year, which they can then use to, well, buy American weapons. So it's the U.S. just funneling money through a foreign government right back to its military industrial complex. You know, they have to make purchases of American armaments. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's U.S. government aid passing through the Egyptian treasury right back to U.S. contractors um, or weapons manufacturers. That's
0: nuts. That's absolutely nuts. Yeah. I didn't know that at all. I mean, it's just... I. I knew that obviously Palestine and Israel is the big thing, and israel are, are basically cutting off Palestine from from the rest of the world, but I didn't know there would there would be this kind of back door almost through Egypt, but that's also been cut off because of this deal i mean you say to purchase peace but it's it's not is it it's it's treading it's treading on the toes of other people just to save their own skins as it were it's it's uh
1: yeah i mean it's it's at the expense of the palestinians for one it's at the expense of the freedom and the popular will of the egyptian people you know this wasn't a popular move with egyptians oh, interesting. the guy that brokered that deal sadat was assassinated shortly after it was made by his own military at a military parade so it was it was uh a purchase deal between certain elite elements of the Egyptian ruling and military class um, and Israel, and the similar treaty has been signed with uh, with Jordan, but they're not the same player. You know, they've got a smaller population. Actually, between sixty and seventy percent of the population of Jordan is actually Palestinian, not Jordanian.
0: Is that right? So
1: it- yeah, the majority of the people living in that country are refugees or Palestinian and then you've got Iraqis because of the US invasion of Iraq and now you've got Syrians.
0: <laughs> sure, yeah. So Jordan like, is
1: in a lot of ways like it's it's a uh, it's it's a huge refugee camp.
0: Well, yeah, let's let's go back to refugee camps then, and you've spoken about the how how do you say Daisha, one that you've lived in um, with the Daesh, yeah, the, yeah, with the cinder block um, thing mm-hmm. buildings because it's been there for so long and it has developed to become more of a permanent structure. Have you had much to do with any camps or, or anyone who's been in camps that are sort of more like tent city type of things?
1: Um a bit tent cities kind of complicated because <laughs> like you've got like moria camp right now i would call people's attention to that because that's like an open indictment of the european union's failure to deal with the refugee crisis where is that the just quickly that, that's that's on the greek island of lesbos which is just off the turkish shore um like a few people have even swam it but i think they were like olympic caliber swimmers <laughs> And uh, it's one of the places that people have been coming over in boats. Effectively, that's been sealed off by Frontex, which is the European Union's border force, um, since 2016. But, uh, yeah, the camp is still there. And you've got people who have just been languishing there for months and I think in some cases even years just waiting for permission to move on. We're talking, I think it was a military prison, or at least part of the compound was, and you've got people staying in those kinds of barracks, desperately overcrowded, and just like, when I was there in late 2015, man, the conditions were like, disgusting, as far as sanitation, um, as far as like, anything that looked remotely livable for more than a, a, a night even, you know, it was, it was awful. The smell was terrible. In
0: what way? Okay, the smell. The smell was
1: terrible. Like the showers were just filthy. Like just imagine tons and tons of people like who just come out of the sea. You know, some of them may be soaking wet and filthy. Who knows what conditions they were living in before they even got in those rafts. And then forced to live in like on top of each other in conditions that weren't ever intended to house people long term to begin with. And so you've got like open sewage running in between like tents that have been set up on the periphery of like the prison complex and freezing cold when I was there in the wintertime, man, it was snowing lightly. You know, people think of Greece, maybe they think of warm weather, but no, it gets wicked cold at night, easily hypothermic temperatures so it's it's a shame on the European Union that that situation continues to not be addressed.
0: It is you certainly don't think that that kind of thing would be going on in the eu I mean yeah man. For, you know it, it's the one of the most developed and one of the most open and sort of working together communities that there is as far as an inter- a, a collaboration between different nations and stuff, and to think that that's going on today, you know even is um yeah it's that's crazy.
1: So the EU has effectively purchased Turkey's role as warehousing people. I mean, there's so many complicated... It's like every time I want to launch into an explanation, I realize that (laughs) requires one. But like Turkey is essentially the largest host country for refugees in the world, except it isn't because Turkey doesn't really recognize refugees. A lot of people don't realize that. It gets thrown around as being the largest host nation of refugees at I think over 3 million But actually it never signed like the, whatever it was, I think it's in the 1950s, a a UN protocol recognizing most forms of refugees worldwide, right? Like the only refugees I think it recognizes are refugees from Europe because it signed one of the um, resolutions after the Second World War dealing with European refugees. So if you're from Europe and you want to seek asylum in Turkey, I think they'll recognize it, but that's it, right? Which isn't really the direction things are going if you're following uh, the flow of refugees. So if you're from the Middle East, they don't really recognize, they don't have any formal recognition of refugees, which they just have like a certain form of protected status, which already automatically causes all kinds of confusion with the the rights that people are entitled to, protections under international law, Turkey's obligations to them. And then the EU has essentially thrown like billions of dollars at Turkey saying, you keep them in Turkey uh, in exchange for money. And then you've got this increasingly autocratic regime in Turkey that can threaten to open the floodgates of refugees if the EU says, wait a minute, you're not being very democratic anymore. We don't want to give you aid money unless you're going to be transparent about how you spend this money. And, and unless you are not imprisoning journalists and, and being uh, having free and fair elections, the president could just say, okay, uh, I'll just open up the gates again. So you've got that going on, like this this high stakes game of bribery going on between the EU and Turkey. And then uh, Syria, which doesn't get talked about at all, you've got who knows how many millions of people who are are still—I don't know the numbers now—but still likely internally displaced within that country. Not to mention the, the numbers that have that have left Syria, and some have become so desperate. Man, we're talking about like oh, we're talking about tent cities. I have seen that in Lebanon in the Bekaa Valley. You have Syrians who are living on. And Lebanon stopped, uh, UNHCR stopped registering refugees in Lebanon, I believe, 2015, right? It's not that they stopped coming, they just stopped registering them. And there's a variety of reasons for that. I think one being that I think European bodies or the UN, I think, may have stopped providing money for Lebanon with, with similar issues with corruption and transparency, I'm not sure. And also Lebanon is a stress to the absolute limit. Like, this is a tiny country, and at this point, I think one in Four or one in five people in Lebanon is Syrian.
0: Wow, that's huge.
1: Yeah, it's a. It's, I mean, it's a small country uh, to begin with, and already like yeah. hasn't fully recovered from its own civil war, which ended in 1990 but lasted 15 years. So you've got that going on, and then people living without a lot of formal protections, living in refugee camps, and like basically this plastic sheeting and and really primitive wooden frame over wooden frames. In uh, the Bekaa Valley, which is this agricultural belt that runs between, well, that runs up against the border with Syria, between Lebanon and Syria, and it gets wicked cold. Also, like snow on the ground, people freeze to death in these camps in the winter time. It's a, it's a regular occurrence, from what I understand. And uh, I mean, I've been there, um, and I've seen how cold and miserable and muddy and and uh, destitute the conditions are. And they're living in a lot of cases on on Lebanese farmland, like land owned by private land. And they need to pay rent to live there. So you've got Syrians who've fled a war, come to Lebanon to live in the middle of, what well, is essentially the middle of nowhere, man. They're not near any major developed place, any urban center. Living in the middle of nowhere and having to pay rent to live in plastic, under plastic sheeting in the middle of the wintertime. And then work the fields and on this privately owned land in order to pay that rent. And their kids are working alongside them in many cases too. And while this is going on, like uh, these kids aren't getting the education that they need. Yeah. And, and the same thing is going on with Gaza right now, because the U.S. just cut like $65 million, if I remember right, in aid to the U.N. organization that provides schools, medication, and food to Palestinian refugees, like several million of them, called UNRWA. The U.S. cut, and it's a principal donor, it cut its aid to this organization. And in both cases, what you're going to end up with is a generation that's lost, that aren't educated, and any Like, whatever your own political ideology or interests are, it's in nobody's interest to have a a generation of people who grow up in poverty and uneducated and pissed off, right? We all know where that leads. So that's what's happening in in a lot of these contexts. And in some cases, it's become so desperate in Lebanon and in Turkey and in Jordan that Syrians have just given up and gone back to Syria. You know and that's been happening really, that's been happening that, for, that
0: says a lot that's, that's been happening for years. That, man. Just that sentence right there says everything that's that's nuts. are there not any international laws or any treaties or agreements that are being broken by this withdrawing of aid or this you know it's clearly not a secret at least for the powers that be that this this oppression or these people these innocent civilians are being forced to live in these squalid conditions unfairly if they're having to pay rent without getting an education is that is is that not going against various treaties or laws or anything like what how do we yeah. how do we get past that
1: well, first, I want to point out that I'm not an expert in international law. I'm not an attorney. So no, I can no. just give you my best, my best understanding based on my, my direct contact with these communities yeah. and also just having read like anybody else can, you know, trying to study this issue and stay informed. So in the case of Turkey, and I think to some extent Lebanon, like the recognition of these people's status as refugees is itself at issue. Right. Like Turkey doesn't formally recognize the people it's hosting as refugees as refugees, which means that they're not afforded certain protections that other signatories to those protocols and conventions are required to give by law. Um, And I think this something similar holds true in Jordan. I don't know that they recognize a lot of Arab countries don't recognize refugees. And I think a lot of this is connected to the Palestinians. And a variety of other issues related to their, to their self-interests and not wanting to have, to grant citizenship or certain protections to, to other communities. Um, I mean, you can imagine what the implications would be in Jordan, where the, most of the population is not Jordanian. Way before, decades before the Syrian war is even happening. So you've got those complicating factors as far as what international laws are even recognized by the countries that are hosting most of the refugees right that's an issue right there and then on top of that uh, whether or not they're even being registered as refugees when they get there Um, so in the case of lebanon like they're not uh, even registering refugees i think since 2015. so there's that there's also well the the enforcement mechanisms and those who would apply pressure are they doing it Um, in the case of the u.s Who's going to force the US to pay its dues?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, when I was asking the question, I was thinking that straight away. I mean, it's if (laughs) you were saying that, you know, it's the US that's cut the aid and and then it has also these links with the Egypt thing for, for cutting off uh, Palestine and everything. I was thinking that I was asking the questions, but I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a huge issue, right? I mean, surely there's, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's, well, there's no question about it that it's just morally and ethically wrong. Yeah. But surely there's some way that they should, that that everyone should be held accountable to that you know or at least a way that people that care can a- can actually help in some way you know
1: i mean i'm a big believer in if people are exposed to the truth in the way that doesn't just like bombard them with facts but triggers their empathy they'll act and it's part of why we're talking right now it's part of why i do what i do I've spent years really trying to like beat people over the head with like the things that frustrate me and with facts (laughs) with, well, I mean, very limited results for a variety of reasons. But I've learned that if you can access people's empathy, if you can get them to recognize like themselves in the struggles of other people, or that it could be their children, you know, or people in their community, their neighbors, if you can trigger that recognition in people, you're more likely to mobilize them for action
0: and how have you best found that you you know you're able to do that if if, if at all
1: well i mean obviously i haven't moved the needle in any measurable way <laughs> on the <a> global scale <laughs> one person that's fine <laughs> you know but um but what i found like in my small little circles like where i've made inroads with people is having direct you know unfiltered contact with other people you know it's a lot harder to just dismiss people or discount them if you've uh, shared time and space with them. And that's also part of why, man, like why I use the mechanism of food. Like I'm not like some hipster foodie guy. God bless that movement, like, you know, but uh, (laughs) and all artisanal foods. But uh, it's just a it's just a vehicle. Food and the dinner table is arguably the world's oldest social forum and its most universal one. You know, everybody knows what it is to create community around food. And it transcends your class, your politics, your gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, all that stuff. So that's why I use food. It instantly creates kind of like this level playing field between um, people. I'm a big believer in that, like just creating forms for people to engage and not necessarily debate, but also not to pretend that there aren't problems. You know, I don't yep. when I host these events, I don't dance around issues or say, hey, like, let's not talk about this because that might upset them. I kind of do the opposite. I try to figure out, okay, I'm not going to provoke controversy, but if we're going to Everybody's here for a reason, you know? We, we know why it's this country connecting to this country. It's because of the problems that they have or the, or the shared frustrations that they have. So let's figure out a way to, to talk about that subject uh, together. But for the most part, people who engage, who are willing to engage in those kinds of encounters, they want them to work, you know? They're not giving up their time to just show up and, and, uh, and make everything fall apart. So creating space for that, giving, creating opportunities for people to engage directly with, through difference, is everything. Um, you might not change their mind on every single little detail, but you'll do a lot just by getting people to recognize that other people are equally human. And as small and like cliche as that sounds, I think a lot of us go through a lot of our time on this earth not really fully recognizing the humanity of people that we don't identify with. That's that's how we're able to dismiss it. That's why there's no sense of urgency. You know, It isn't really real to us until like we have a real connection
0: yeah I completely get that and I mean listen this I've learned so much or heard so many new things from you just in the last hour or so that we've been talking that I didn't know before and I feel like uh you've opened my eyes to a lot of things and this is just me hearing it from you you know I've not experienced it firsthand I'm just I, my last question for you before we wrap things up is simply uh how is it for you after you're you know, you're going to these places, whether it be Mexico or whether it be Gaza or the West Bank or wherever it might be? What's it like when you come back to well, you're currently based in Spain, aren't you? Which mm-hmm. out of all of the EU, anyway, is probably one of the more relaxed countries. <laughs> you know, even com- in in a, in a collection of countries that's pretty damn relaxed. What's that like? That change after being in these places that are, for all intents and purposes either potentially dangerous or poverty stricken or whatever it might be highly emotional places where there are clearly lots of wrongdoings going on people suffering uh, and, and things that need improving how do you adjust back to to normal life
1: hmm. that's a really good question um i think in a lot of ways you don't and i don't want to like fully readjust you know you're altered by these experiences if you're open to them at all and i think with that comes i found a sense of responsibility to share the things that i've seen and the impact that they've had on my way of thinking i mean one thing that i haven't spoken about really is like where i was at when i before i started doing all this traveling and i didn't come from a place man where i was raised by like hippie parents and some like uh with uh, a, a worldly view on um, humanity, I was raised in a pretty conservative community. Um, I had a lot of opportunities in my upbringing, and I had a stable family. You know, um, no complaints, just the normal like uh, family challenges. But I, I was raised in a pretty conservative background, and not one that really predisposed me to like want to go travel in the Middle East and live in refugee camps and and learn about what was happening in some of these places. It was accidental encounters with people who were very patient with me in the U.S. and in other places along the way who could hear kind of the ignorance and the arrogance and like my American-centric view or my conservative upbringing and just being sure that I was right based on the media I was consuming and just being willing to hear me out, like gently offer critique, not always gently, sometimes I had it coming. But um, as I said earlier, like host me when I was traveling in some of these places, even if it was just for a meal or for like a tea, and let me see how they were living. And just, I think, having the confidence that if I was an open-minded person at all, I, I would be changed, and I was. And so a lot of what informs what I do is wanting to take other people on this very kind of unlikely journey that I've been on that's radically changed the way that I see the world. From the way that I grew up as like a conservative Christian with more right-leaning political views, <laughs> you know, okay. to being in a very different place, how I view the world and my place in it. And so I feel a sense of responsibility for the, the for the patience and kindness and hospitality other people have shown me to try and put that back out into the world and to the best I can try and educate people. I won't claim expertise, but I have had experiences that I can share and, and just be authentic about what they've been, what they've meant to me. And all these things are complicated, you know? Like, uh, I, I think we live in a time when so many people, or where a lot of the um, the political discourse seems to be about one side trying to point out the hypocrisy of the other side and claim, like, a monopoly on certainty and the truth. And the reality is that, that things are usually a lot messier than people make them out to be. If And by people, I mean, like, people with political interests, <laughs> right? Yeah. And getting comfortable and navigating kind of like that that murky space where it's like you know there can be groups that you're advocating for but you don't agree with all their political platforms you know or there can be groups that you adamantly disagree with their politics but you can still see the humanity of a lot of the people involved in those organizations and you understand the fear that's motivating them and maybe the ignorance that like that that needs to be addressed if you're going to start changing their minds instead of just running headlong into a conflict so coming back home hasn't been something i've done a whole lot in the last few years like i'm home now <laughs> is overseas but interacting with people that come from like culturally familiar contexts I try to just be as open as I can about the experiences that I've had, try and demonstrate the patience that's been shown to me. I'm not a particularly patient person, (laughs) Um, but, uh, but I try and manifest it the best that I can and encourage people to go and see these places for themselves. You know, we spent like the better part of an hour and a half talking about like how challenging and heartbreaking some of these places are, but there's a reason I keep going back, man. Like there's a reason and it's not that like uh, I'm some heroic or noble figure. I've done very little, I think, in measurable terms, but I've fallen in love with these places and, and the culture and the community in a lot of these places and how warm and receptive the people are and how much that's at odds with how they're so frequently represented in a media. That's heartbreaking and frustrating to me, but it's what keeps me wanting to go back. I genuinely like these places.
0: Yeah, I, I, I Yeah, I think that's probably a perfect way to end uh this conversation. I mean what you do and what you've done and and what you're going you know what you are doing in the future is very very admirable and and I you know I, I do really wish you all the best and keep it up and keep spreading the word and keep meeting people and bringing people together and you know you you say in a very modest way about you know you maybe haven't made a difference in any global measurable way but i think it's about the little things that matter you know and it's it's people like you you're not the only one out there doing things like this you know and it's yeah, it's yeah, the, sure. the combined efforts of people like you that do make that needle start to swing uh, into a measurable effect and so yeah keep on keeping on thanks man And there you have it! I'm sure you'll agree that the things spoken about in today's and last week's episodes certainly shine a light on different countries in what is often simply known as the Middle East. And that you start to think about the actual people, the normal people, who are undeservedly suffering while the rest of the world looks on. It's certainly changed my outlook with respect to this area. And if you like the sound of Eric and the project he's working on with bringing normal people together from either side of political conflicts and from all over the world, then do go and check out his website openroadsmedia.org and check out his podcast latitude adjustment which can be found at latitudeadjustmentpod.com or wherever you get podcasts also as i'm sure you can tell we barely scratched the surface of some of the things that eric has experienced and could talk about and i'm very keen to get him back on the podcast at some point in the near future so if you do have any questions or if there's anything you'd have wanted him to go into more detail about, then do get in touch with me either on social media at the BB Podcast on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or by email to bottomlesspitpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you'd rather go directly to Eric himself, you can find him on Facebook by searching for Latitude Adjustment Podcast or at Latitude Podcast on Twitter and at open underscore roads underscore media on Instagram. And as for the Bottomless Pit Podcast, if you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing wherever it is that you're listening to us from. And come join us on social media, as I said, where you'll be kept up to date of all the things going on at the podcast, as well as having access to exclusive photos and videos that accompany most episodes. Once more, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for at the BP Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with the show, You can do so by sending an email to bottomlesspitpodcast at gmail.com or by going to thebbpodcast.wordpress.com. Right, that's it for this week, everybody. So thanks very much for listening. And until next time, bye-bye. The Bottomless Pit podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow BritpodScene on Twitter to find out more.